0: Welcome. I hope you all are doing fine under these hard and trying circumstances, and I hope you're all staying safe. As you can see, I am today recording from home. This is actually my wife's office at home, and she has been kind enough to let me record this lecture here. And today I will begin my explanation of Terry Eagleton's Chapter 5 on Psychoanalysis. Now, this is uh, quite a complex chapter, so I'm thinking of at least doing two lectures on it, and this is going to be the first part of it. If you have read the chapter, you already know that it roughly has four parts. In part one, Eagleton explains to us, as best as we can understand it, uh, Freud's own work on psychoanalysis. Then he gives us a brief overview of critiques that have been mounted against um, Freud and his work. Critiques from feminists, critiques from other uh, scholarly directions. Then he gives us a brief account of Lacan's uh, rewriting of Freud or reimagining of Freud. And along with it, he also gives us Julia Kristeva's take on it. And then towards the end, he also gives us examples of how psychoanalysis can be used as a mode of literary th- criticism and how people have used it. And he actually, this is one of the very few chapters where he actually applies it to a novel, right? So these are some of the parts. In today's lecture, I'll primarily focus on Eagleton's explanation of Freud and his basic concepts. I will also be relying on some outside sources, and I hope that you will be able to see my slides as well. So uh, let me bring my slides up so that you can see them. And let's see how it works. I'm on my wife's computer, so it's kind of for me going back and forth is going. So. Uh, if you if you're reading the text on the very first page right let me make this text bigger Uh, he gives us this quote on page 131 which says the motive of human society is in the last resort an economic one now most of us would associate it with marx i mean it was marx who also said that you know, the motive of human society in the last instance is an economic one, that things are determined by economics in the last instance, when we figure it out. This was actually Freud who said that. And then he gives us, Eagleton on the same page, gives us an account of how Freud imagined, right, human beings, right, which is very close to Marx. I mean, of course, Marx probably adapted it from this. What has dominated human history to date is the need to labor. And for Freud, that harsh necessity means that we must repress some of our tendencies to pleasure and gratification, or this homo favor, this human being, who needs to be productive, needs to work in Marx, is very humanistically rendered, right? And is made an essential part of who we are. But here, in Freud, there is a slight twist. And the twist is that in order to sustain life, we as humans, you know, need to work. We are essentially pleasure-seeking animals, right? And that tendency... To labor, to learn certain skills, right? That is what forces us to repress seeking immediate gratification, immediate pleasure, right? Uh, so, but one thing that I saw that was missing in this chapter is that uh, Eagleton doesn't give us like a an, uh, uh, whole uh, concerted account of the three parts of psyche that Freud theorizes, right? And that you already know, it's the id, the ego, and superego. So I can't even read my own slide, but I'll see. According to Freud's model, the id is the primitive and instinctual part of the mind that contains sexual and aggressive drives and hidden memories. The superego operates as a moral conscience, and the ego is the realistic part that mediates between the desires of the id and the superego. So, let's say we human beings, in Freudian terms, then when we are children, we are pure id, led by the desires and led by the drives. Now, remember, the drives are instinctual, right? Hunger, sex, right? Aggressiveness, these are instinctual. Now, the ego is that part of our psyche that kind of keeps the drives at check it's the it's the rational principle right so or the reality principle right So the id, according to Freud, is the pleasure principle. It seeks immediate fulfillment. Ego is the one that kind of tempers it. And the way ego tempers it, because ego is privy to the superego, the larger structure of power, the society, whatever its norms are. So ego mediates between the id and the superego. And these are the three three functional parts of psyche in Freud. Now, if we go to the next page in the same chapter, right? Um, I'm still trying to find my presentation. Uh, sorry. So on the very next page, Eagleton gives us a definition of neurosis, right? And the reason he's doing it, I'll explain in a minute. What he's saying is we are pre- what we are prepared to put up We are prepared to put up with repression as long as we see that there is something in it for us. If too much is demanded of us, however, we are likely likely to fall sick. This form of sickness is known as neurosis. And since, as I've said, all human beings must be repressed to some degree, it is possible to speak of a human race in the words of one of Freud's comment as the neurotic animal. So, first of all, repression. So if we are led by the id and id is instinctual desires and there is a super ego that tells us what we can and cannot do and the ego that mediates between the two, then most of the times as functional human beings in the world, we have to repress certain tendencies, certain desires. That means pretty much the entire edifice of this civilization is built on, the balance is built on those repressions. Now... For as long as we can convince ourselves that if I repress this desire and this desire, there'll be a better outcome for me, right? Then we can sustain it. But if we don't see any end to our repressions and there is no reward for it, that is when we become neurotic, right? We will become psychotic when we start imagining things, right? Somebody. So neurosis is when we are terrified of things, right? It's coming from our psyche. A psychosis is when we see, you know, things that are not there, right? And that's the subtle difference between the two. But the reason he's bringing up neurosis here is that the question is about civilization. If it is built on repression, then pretty much all human beings, you know, are neurotic. Right. And if we are neurotic, what kind of a civilization have we built? That's the big question. But then he gives us the reason. Why is it that human beings are considered the neurotic animals? Right. Because what animals could be that, but we can't access their consciousness. But the reason that Eagleton is giving us through Freud is because what he says is that I'm going to the next slide. But what he's saying is that we, uh, human beings are the only pretty much species who are born helpless. And since we are completely born helpless, we require the care of those who love us, feed us, clothe us for a very long period. And that long period is our developmental period. And because of that, there is sufficient time and dependency for us to develop as these neurotic animals, right? Because of that dyad, first, the child and the mother, and when it becomes the triad, when the figure of the father enters, what Freud then means is that we develop certain psyche because of that dependence, right? And. Uh, Okay, so if we are led by the id, right? And uh, we the id wants to follow its instinctual desire, which is the pleasure principle. And if we find out that there is something that we want to do, but it's not permissible, then we sublimate it, right? So we're also kind of sublimating it. So instead of following our sexual drives, right, our sexual tendencies, we invest the same energy into something that is socially permissible, right, playing with dolls. right, building bridges, right, or all the philanthropy and other stuff that rich people do is all sublimating whatever they want to do, and if they cannot do it, you sublimate it into something that is socially permissible right so that's also another one of freudian concepts that we are made aware of era. and then you know we get the answer on page 132 again why only humans are neurotic or repressed Right. And the, I already explained to you, it's because we have a very longer period of development. And what is that development? Freud gives us, you know, five stages of human development. So the first one is the oral stage from birth to one year. This is the time when the mouth is the erogenous zone. Right. And the child, right, seeks pleasure. Right. Freud would say it's sexual right? But the first contact of a child is with the mother's breast. That is from where the food comes to the child's mouth. But in the process of consuming milk, that food, the child also is discovering that it gives him or her pleasure. Then comes the anal stage from one to three years, right? In that case, the erogenous zone is the Bladder control, the bowels, right? Uh, The child also learns control and realizes that by controlling, by withholding feces, he or she can control the parents, right? The phallic stage is from three to six years, right? That's when the child, according to Freud, becomes aware of the genitalia, is obsessed with the genitalia. Right, and this is also the stage where the child will resolve or enter the Oedipus complex. Right now, the Oedipus complex in Freud is mostly rendered in male terms. Freud is pretty silent on—not silent, but misguided on female psyche. So, what is the Oedipus complex? Uh, Let me explain it here instead of waiting. Waiting, you know. Um, until later. So, if you know the story of Oedipus, right? Oedipus Rex, coming from Greek mythology, right? Um, the House of Thebes, the most tragic of them all, right? Oedipus uh, was sent to was sent out to be killed, but the slave was supposed to kill him, leaves him because there was a prophecy that he will kill his own father. Eventually, when he's coming back to Thieves, he runs into a stranger, kills him accidentally, I think, or kills him in a sports arena because his discus hits the king, and eventually marries his own mother, has children. And then when he realizes, when he finds out that the cause of the pestilence in his kingdom is because he has married his own mother, it's that myth that Freud is using to define the term Oedipus Complex, right? In Freud, in the phallic stage, that is when the child encounters the Oedipus Complex, and the complex is that the child still desires the mother's body, right? But he suddenly realizes that that body belongs to the father. The dyad is now becoming a triad, right? And he has to resolve that conflict. The resolution is where he accepts that this body belongs to my father, but if I follow the rules, if I follow the law of the father, right, then eventually one day I'll get to have this body too. And it's that resolution that would then lead the child to a balanced next stage, to a latent period, right, which is from puberty. And in this time zone, six to puberty, sexual feelings are inactive, the child has now become social and so the development of ego and superego, because the Oedipus complex kind of must have been resolved, the child has now reached a stage where he becomes more social, right, and uh, more things become important, peer pressure, how the others view you, relationships, hobbies, right? And then from puberty to death is what is what Freud calls the genital stage. And while the earlier stages were focused on individual needs, this one, if the previous stages have been passed carefully and correctly, you know, this stage is where you one lives their life, right? Well balanced, right, with sexual interests and seeking a partner and most probably the child would have according to Freud resolved that he or she is heterosexual right that's also part of the whole deal of resolution of this complex then on page 134 to 136 um, Freud gives us this explanation of pleasure versus reality principle I already briefly talked about it right Uh, So, you know, in um, the early stages, when the child is led by the drives, by the instincts, right, and the instincts seek immediate pleasure, but it's the law of the father, the law of the phallus, right, which forces the child to encounter the reality principle that there is a limit to his or her desires, and that limit is the law of the father. the presence of the father and negotiating the two learning to withhold pleasure that's done through reality principle through the function of the ego right now moving on (laughs) it's a lot I know Uh, the next part that he discusses is um, the same on the same page is that it's the promise of a future, you know, following the rules, if I follow the rules, I will get the reward, the body of the mother that the child desires is that encourages the child when his desires come to in conflict with the reality, that the reality principle forces us, right? to control our desires, to repress them. That brings us to the unconscious, to the discussion of the unconscious on page 136. Because whatever we repressed, according to Freud, right, it doesn't go away, right? It, it's repressed into the unconscious. So the Freud has a very a topographical model of the conscience. So reason, reason, rational consciousness is on the top. Just under it is the subconscious, which is aware of what's happening. And then the unconscious, which is completely inaccessible to rational thought, right? That's where our repressions go and live. And that's what Eagleton is explaining on page 136, right? What does he say? The human subject who emerges from the Oedipal process is a split subject torn precariously between conscience and unconscious. And the unconscious can always return to plague it, right? Because that's where repressions live. It under So what he says, most people call it the subconscious, but that kind of underestimates the radicality of the term unconscious, right? It underestimates the extreme strangeness of the unconscious, which is a place and a non-place, which is completely indifferent to reality, which knows no logic or negation or causality or contradiction, wholly given over as it is to the instinctual play of the drives and the search for pleasure. So as a territory, right, the unconscious is unmappable. It doesn't follow the rational logic. It doesn't have an arrangement like a catalog, right? But there are ways to access it, right? Because that is where our repressions go and live, right? Now, when the unconscious throws them back at us, right, it doesn't do a good job, according to Freud. It mixes things up, makes them into metaphors, Right? makes them metonymic, but it can give us one thing instead of the other. It's not a really good editor. And the one way where we can access the unconscious is in dreams, right? right? The royal road to the unconscious is dreams. Dreams allow us one of our few privileged glimpses of it at work. Dreams, for Freud, are essentially symbolic fulfillments of unconscious wishes, and they are cast in symbolic form because if this material were expressed directly, then it might be shocking and disturbing enough to wake us up. In order that we should get some sleep, the unconscious charitably conceals, softens, and distorts its meanings so that our dreams become symbolic texts which need to be deciphered. The watchful ego is still at work even within our dreaming, censoring an image here or scrambling a message there. And the unconscious itself adds to this obscurity by its peculiar peculiar modes of functioning, right? So this is all that's happening in our unconscious as we sleep, Right all that the desires that we have stressed, immediate and long-term, right? The unconscious throws it back at us, right? But it's still very, it doesn't want to wake us up. There's still a little bit of censorship going on. So it gives this, those dreams to us in jumbled form, in metaphoric form, in symbolic terms, right? That's why one of the works that Most psychoanalysts will ask you is that you should record your dreams, right? Even when we give writing advice to people and we want them to be able to access their, you know, inner thoughts, we tell them, okay, do a journal as soon as you wake up because it allows you to capture whatever, you know, whatever it was in your dreams. But one access to the unconscious then is through dreams, right? I also use another example is that we all are aware of it, that if our rational mind, you know, is dulled, we are likely to express something or say something that will be socially not accepted. Think of it this way. How many times have you told your friends, oh, when you go out, you know, don't get too drunk? Or how many times you have you reminded yourself not to drink too much if you're amongst people who are not your friends, certainly not drink before a job interview. All of it is premised upon this belief that if our rational mind is dulled, is, is asleep, is slowed down, then the unconscious will express itself. Maybe it will not know the no, the, the moral or social no, right? Another way on page 137, Eagleton says is that we can access the unconscious is dreams, but also what Freud calls, you know, parapraxis or what we call a Freudian slip. Sometimes we, in the middle of saying something else, something slips out. It can be sexist. It can be homophobic. It can be something that we would otherwise be horrified to say, but it slips out, right? jokes are another way where our repressed ideas, repressed thoughts are expressed because they allow us that space to be facetious while saying silly things, things that we will not say in a serious conversation right But overall the unconscious remains you know sort of a uncharterable, unmappable territory. Now, all of this that Freud is doing, his research and all, is with this belief that we can cure people's mental illness, their paranoia, right, if they are psychotic or neurotic. And the process, what we call the talking cure, you know, is... is, is that first of all, we should be able to access what a person has repressed, right? Because what we do physically is an expression of whatever is repressed. That's what we call the return of the repressed. What is, it, is repressed is expressing itself in destructive behaviors, right? And so the idea is if we could access the unconscious through dream work, through talking about traumas, then maybe after we have encountered it, what we had repressed and released it, we will maybe become whole and be able to function normally. Now, what Freud is saying is that this happens through transference. Okay, what is transference? When me, the patient, is talking to an analyst, you know, the analyst is not going to judge me but the analyst is constantly asking me these questions to probe my own unconscious, to probe my own consciousness. Now, if I have repressed something deeply private, I will get angry, right? I will then transfer my anger and aggression on to the analyst, right? So, the nub of the cure for Freudian theory is what is known as transference, a concept sometimes properly confused with Freud calls projection, but it's not necessarily projection. What does Freud mean by it? Let's see. In the course of a treatment, the analyzant or patient may begin unconsciously to transfer on to the figure of the analyst, the physical conflicts from which he or she suffers, right? Now, As he or she is transferring it to the analyst, the analyst is taking it down, right? Breaking it down into manageable, rational parts and narrating it back to the patient. And by virtue of this drama of transference and the insight and the interventions which it permits the analyst, the patient's problems are gradually redefined In terms of the analytical situation itself, me stating to you, the patient, oh, this is what probably what is going on. In this sense, paradoxically, the problems which are handled in the consulting room are never quite at one with the real life problems of the patient they have have something of the fictional relation to those real-life problems, which a literary text has to the real-life materials it transforms. So what happens then in a session is not that we encourage our patient to encounter their trauma and then resolve it, but the session allows the patient to create a sustainable narrative. It doesn't even have to be true. It only may have a part of the trauma, but a cohesive narrative, and it is that narrative that enables the patient to heal themselves, according to Freud. And it is that story. Another way of describing, Eagleton says, this process is to say that the patient becomes able to recollect portions of her life which she has repressed. She is able to recount a new, more complete narrative about herself, one which will interpret and make sense of the disturbances from which she suffers. The talking cure, as it is called, will have taken effect after the patient has developed a new narrative, after having confronted, with the help of an analyst, the traumas which were embedded in his or her consciousness. Now, towards the end of this section then, Eagleton gives us one of Freud's statements. Maybe a final statement about civilization, and I think it's pertinent for us even today. And I quote If a society has not developed beyond a point at which the satisfaction of one group of its members depends upon the suppression of another, it is understandable that those suppressed should develop an intense hostility towards a culture whose existence their labor has made possible, but in whose riches they have too small a share. It goes without saying, Freud declares that a civilization which leaves so large a number of its participants unsatisfied and drives them into revolt neither has nor deserves the prospect of a lasting existence. I I think it's a really moving passage. We will associate it with Marx, right? Those of us who are Marxists. But that is Freud. And think of our civilization, where we exist, the world in which we live. We absolutely know that happiness of a few depends upon the oppression of a majority of the population of this planet. But we somehow still think that it's a sustainable system. Psychologically, it is not. And if you really want to know what this system is doing to our psyches, right, please watch my video on Franco Berardi's The Soul at Work, right? I'll probably post a link to it here, but do watch it. He explains it better, what psychosomatic traumas are affecting our bodies. To, to, to some of this part of the chapter, what we are introduced to then is what are Freud's basic concepts, right? How does he divide the psyche into the conscious brain, the subconscious and the unconscious? Then, What are the three parts of the psyche? The id, the ego, and the superego, right? And the five stages of development. And through that, the resolution of the Oedipus complex, which is absolutely necessary, according to Freud, for a male subject to resolve their conflict with the father and become so-called normal. And then the unconscious is the place where all our repressions go and reside and it throws them back at us in dreams or in slippages of tongues, the unconscious expressions, parapraxes or Freudian slips that we call it. And towards the end, the whole process of transference and developing a new narrative of confronting the traumas with the help of an analyst, and that's crucial. The dream work is crucial, and this is crucial because that is what Eagleton would eventually connect to, what can be useful in literary theory. There is also a brief reference in this section that I've talked about to Lacan and how Lacan takes certain aspects of structuralist linguistics and then correspondingly tries to explain the unconscious in those terms, but I will talk about that in the next lecture. So that is all I have for today about the first part of my lecture on Eagleton's Chapter 5 on Psychoanalysis. If you have any questions, any concerns, please send them my way, post a comment, email me, and I'll be happy to answer all those questions. And I will soon record Part 2 of this lecture as well. So stay tuned for that. And before I leave, stay safe right? Take care of yourself. Take care of those around you in these times. And as always, peace and love.